Hi, Dreamers. This episode here is something that's been in the works for a long time now. It is yet another collaboration with Justin Rimmel, the host of the Mysterious Circumstances podcast, Rev96, and Blood and Dust. It's a story that involves, of course, a mysterious murder, a colorful cast of suspects, and a possible conspiracy to cover up and hide evidence in order to avoid a potential Hollywood scandal, the likes of which had been plaguing early 20th century Hollywood. So, without further ado, the Mysterious Circumstances podcast and the California Dreaming podcast proudly present The Mysterious Death of William Desmond Taylor. I want to thank you again for doing another episode with me. I really like this time you asked me, <laughs> this is your case. Uh-huh. So that was it's that. California. I know. I know. And I'm really, really happy. And I'm honored to always do these episodes with you and that you actually enjoy working with me and want to again and again. <laughs> always- I wanted to get you involved in a, in a classic whodunit famous murder mystery. So this is a good one. It really is. I always get really good feedback from the listeners about our our episodes. I mean, there's always like that one person that doesn't like it, but that's so few and far between. Yeah, I I always get feedback or really great feedback. Everybody loves them. On your show, she sounds awful. (laughs) Uh Oh well, don't feel bad because I had one of your fans uh, leave me a one star review. So. basically oh, wow. oh it's a it's okay it's okay well, it's, i it's i hope very... i hope he or she enjoys this episode immensely it's, it's, it's <laughs> not about you or me it's about the story that we're telling it's a good and compelling story so it really is and it's one that you could dive into and it's hasn't been solved in almost 100 years you know and it's right. it's old hollywood you know please don't leave justin one star reviews because you don't like <laughs> him or it. it says that this is a it's our both of our shows just pass it on by don't even stop nothing to see here <laughs> nothing to see here <laughs> just keep going and, and if you do leave a crappy review justin is going to cut you up in a future episode so there's that <laughs> like yeah i kind of did that to your last fan so it was it was a pretty brutal i got pretty savage roseanne oh. but i did tell that person how much I loved you. So, you know, if that's any consolation. It's like I said, it's just one out of so many more that enjoy these shows. Oh yeah. And this is, this is so good. So what did you think of, and by the way, for everybody listening, we're going to be talking about the murder of William Desmond Taylor, uh, 1922 Hollywood. And this is literally probably the most famous murder mystery of hollywood it still is it's it's really compelling what did you think about it when you started getting into it i did not like william desmond taylor all that much i thought he was kind of a jerk him being taken out like that didn't really surprise me it didn't he made uh, quite a few enemies and i think at the end of the day everybody will probably agree with us you know he put on quite the facade of being a proper gentleman and, you know, having a, having a classy reputation. But I think at the end of the day, he was, uh, 
he was a piece of crap. So Okay, so today we're talking about William Desmond Taylor. He was an actor and director at a time when Hollywood was beginning to become the epicenter of the motion picture industry, the early 20th century. From 1913 to 1919, he acted in 27 silent films, and between 1914 and 1922, he directed 59 of them. He was actually born William Cunningham Dean Tanner on April 26, 1872 in Carlow, Ireland. He was one of five children. His parents were Major Kearns Dean Tanner, and he was a retired British Army officer and Jane O'Brien. He attended Marlborough College in England for a couple years when he was 13 to age 15. And um, it was and is today an independent boarding school in Wiltshire, England, and it was founded in 1843. And it was supposed to have been used for the sons of the Church of the England clergy, but today it is no longer an all-boys school. It's referred to as a co-educational school. And it is one of the costliest schools in the Association of British Independent Schools. And it was during William's time there when he first began having an interest in acting. And um, when he was 18, it seemed as though he had some sort of falling out with his father. What it was, I'm not completely sure. Do you have an idea of what happened between him and his dad? I really didn't hear too much, uh, you know, too many details about it, but I did hear he had a had a falling out and decided to just jump, you know, yeah. go to a different country. <laughs> yeah, I think his dad wasn't too keen on the acting. He wanted him to be like what's called a gentleman farmer, and I'll I'll get into that in just a minute. He did immigrate to the United States in um, 1890. Um, He ended up on a dude ranch in Kansas. And a dude ranch is sometimes referred to as a guest ranch, which are geared towards visitors to attract tourists. And um, it was a popular thing in the late 19th century in the American West. So back when William was a teen and going into adulthood, it wasn't uncommon for people in England and Ireland who were of a higher social and economic status to send their sons to the United States to become what's termed a gentleman farmer. And I had never heard of this. (laughs) I I don't know much about farming to begin with, but (laughs) I had to look it up. (laughs) A gentleman farmer is someone who has part of his property set aside for farming for pleasure. It's not for their income or sustenance. They don't have income from the farm. It's just a part of their property that's set aside specifically for that. There's usually another source of income that the family has, and the farming is sort of like a um, a hobby, I guess you could say. As to the falling out with his father, because of the path that William would eventually take, one could assume that it had to do with him not really wanting to come back home and run the farm on his estate. It didn't look like William had any intentions of coming back to live in England once he was here in this country. And um, when he was in Kansas, he started wanting to act again. He eventually ended up in New York, where he found work as an antiques dealer. That's when he really began pursuing his interest in acting was in New York. The Dean Tanner family was actually very affluent, and his father was known to be a very strict disciplinarian with a quick temper. And of the children, it seems that he was at odds mostly with William. Not really clear, like we had said, what they fought about all the time. 
or what led to him leaving home for good, but it's been speculated that it had to do with the acting, but also, I guess, William was known to be somewhat promiscuous and romantically involved with numerous women when he was young. I'm not clear if it was because the he, the women were older, and I think his father kind of looked down upon that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, I don't know, do you know much about his dating life when he was a <laughs> No, I pretty much read the same thing, that uh, he was he was a bit of a drinker as well, but about the time he got to America, which we'll get to, you know, when he was in New York and stuff, he was he was known to be quite the bit of a drinker, but, but yeah, very, very promiscuous. And it also, I read that his dad was really disappointed because, William was unable to pass the eye exam in order to join the army. And as a result of that, he was thrown out of the house. It's thought to have been possible because William did have some dodgy vision. They do believe that his dad thought that he was faking his poor eyesight so that he would be deemed unfit for service. And he thought that this was somewhat of a cowardly move on his son's part. If he did think this, then he would have been mistaken because William did have bad eyesight and um, he would, though, later go on to serve in World War One. So it wasn't something that inhibited his eligibility for military service all that much. He served in uh, for Canada, too, didn't he? Not only America, yeah. but Canada. Yeah. We'll get more into his desire to be an actor a little bit later. When his dad found out that that he was participating in some acting, he became infuriated because in that line of work, um, back in those days, I guess, was looked down upon as a lowly op- occupation. It said that this was the precipitating factor that why he ended up sending William to Kansas. He sent him to a place that was specifically designed for turning young men and that were acting up into gentle- gentlemen farmers. And while he did develop a lifelong love of being outdoors and horseback riding and horses, he didn't really have any other goals beyond that. And he had several jobs in between, you know, going from Kansas to New York. He worked on the railroads. He had some manual labor jobs. He waited tables. He did um, selling subscriptions door to door and stuff like that. But eventually he made his way to New York and he would meet his, who would become his future wife. Apparently she had come from a little bit of money from what I understand. Um, I really didn't look too much into her just because of a lot of other stuff going on and a lot of other theories with uh, with his actual murder. But he goes to New York and starts uh, he starts doing a little bit of acting there. And, you know, they're pretty high class. They're socialites. They're drinking. They're having a good time. But he still has a reputation of being promiscuous. Apparently he cheats on her a lot of time. You know, it it was a pretty shady situation. I do know that, well, before we get to that part, I guess, he ends up getting married to her, and they have a young daughter. And this is when he's about 33 years old. When he is about 36 years old, he goes out to have lunch one day and just disappears. And this is in 1908. He supposedly had gone and worked, you know, the oil fields in Alaska and all that good stuff. Now, supposedly, he had claimed himself to have memory lapses, points in time where he would not know who he was or where he was. And only by his narrative, though, 
is who says this? Nobody else really can confirm this or has ever confirmed this. And this was even at the time of his death. I think he, a lot of people chalked it up or even he chalked it up himself because he ends up going back to New York a few years later, which we'll get to. But I just, I don't know. I don't think he was a very good guy to be settling down. I think he was trying to move up in the world and, and be, you know, this huge star or this person. He really wasn't, you know what I mean? So it's just really hard to explain. He was just really, really shady. But it is suspected that, yeah, his wife had a little bit of money because of their social status. And, you know, they were they were high society in New York at the time. But, yeah, well, one day when he was 36 years old, he goes and has lunch and just never comes back. And he ends up going to Hollywood. He shows up in Hollywood in 1912 after supposedly working some oil fields, working in the Klondike in Alaska. Like I said, I think pretty sure this is by his narrative. 1912, he shows up in Hollywood with a new name of William Desmond Taylor. In 1913, he stars in his first film called The Quakeress. You know, after making a few films, he decides that he wants to direct. So in 1915, he starts directing and working for what would be known as Paramount Pictures. And like I said, he's known as a as a classy quote unquote gentleman. He was known as the gentleman director. That was his nickname. And he had this accent. And supposedly, I'm not sure about different accents from different regions. So I do apologize for the foreign listeners. But being from Ireland, supposedly sometime in this time frame, his accent changed. He had an English accent when he shows up in Hollywood. So not 100% sure how that all worked out. But yeah, I mean, by 1921, 1922, he's 40 years old. He's a leading director. He's a handsome older guy. He's classy, and he's extremely successful at this point. His wife and daughter went to uh, to a movie, and I can't uh, remember exactly what year this was, but he was in a movie called uh, Captain Alvarez, and his wife and daughter actually see him in a movie, and... His wife like looks at his daughter and is like, "Oh, there's your dad," you know. <laughs> and uh, she ends up calling the studio to try to get a hold of him, and she does. He ends up going to New York and meets his daughter and tries to kind of repair the relationship there. But I don't, I don't know how involved he was in repairing that relationship. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that one. In his defense, when he did take off on his wife, that happened on October 23rd, 1908. He took $600 from the antique store that he was working at. He did leave 500 of it for his wife and took the other 100 for himself and vanished. He did this without saying a word. He had no explanations, no apologies. And as you had mentioned, his friends would come to his defense and say that he had mental lapses. He had episodes of amnesia, like, oh, whoops, I forgot I was married. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, and his wife's name was Ethel, and um, she was divorced in 1912. Now, this was at the point where I started to not really like this guy very much. And even considering the possibility that he struggled with mental illness, I mean, come on. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> he he went on to be quite successful and do okay for himself. So I didn't think he had forgot all that much about himself. 
he forgot about his wife and his kids. So it seemed sort of selective to me. <laughs> Very selective, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't um, too clear where he was for about four years following his disappearance. He did go to Canada and he did go to Alaska and to some northwestern parts of the United States. He found work as an engineer and he did some gold mining and he also worked with some acting troops. And he finally ended up in California and he that's when he officially changed his name. He started working in silent films and directing, though he did leave Hollywood for a time when World War I broke out to serve in the British Army. That's what he had his first acting roles in 1913 and 1914. And then, you know, the war started happening at that time. As far as his personal life, like with his family life, his younger brother, Dennis, would follow in his footsteps and he had gotten into the antique dealing business as well. And it is believed he immigrated to the United States to join his brother in California to work for him in kind of an unofficial capacity. And he may have had a part in one or two of William's films as well. And he too, this brother, also walked out on his wife and their two daughters in 1912. And they ended up moving to Monrovia, California. His wife came down with tuberculosis and was getting some treatment out here. And her sister's husband was the physician in charge there. And wanting to help support his brother's ex-wife and his nieces, William began sending her $50 a month because of his brother's abandonment. His wife, Ethel, would get remarried, but there was an occasion where she had seen him in that film in the theater mm -hmm. and said to their daughter, her da their daughter's name was Daisy, that um, that was their dad. And she did write to him, and they started corresponding, and um, they would eventually get together for visits. So the desertion, she kind of didn't have that many hard feelings, and neither did his ex-wife. But by then, you know, he's making money, so, you know, it, it behooves them to be, you know, nice with the, and make nice with dad, and, you know, he would help support them at that point. He became engaged himself to an actress named Neva Gerber for about five years between 1914 and 1919. Um, they met while they were working on a film together, but they never got married. As World War I began winding down in July of 1918, he did enlist in the um, Canadian expedition as a private, eventually rising to the rank of captain. By this time, he was 46 years old. He returned to Hollywood in May of 1919. And shortly after his return, he was actually honored by the Motion Picture Directors Association at a banquet. Following his return from military service, he would go on to direct some of the most famous movie stars at the time. And this is where he would reach the pinnacle of his career in Hollywood. Yeah. So on February 1st, 1922, after a busy day of shooting at the studio, he heads home to change clothes, and, you know, we don't exactly know what his plans were for the evening. But at 7 p.m., he has a visitor by the name of Mabel Normand. Now, Mabel Normand was a famous, she was a famous silent film actress at that time, and supposedly those two had had some kind of relationship because of evidence that was found later. She says when she arrived... Taylor was arguing with someone on the phone very loudly. She doesn't know who it was. She ends up leaving at about 7.45 p.m. Now, at about 8 p.m., supposedly, there's an eyewitness. There's a couple eyewitnesses. Apartment manager by the name of E.C. Jesserin and Douglas McLean and Faith McLean, who were neighbors, 
they said that they hear a what sounds like a gunshot at about 8 p.m. The eyewitness, who's a neighbor by the name of Faith McLean and her husband Douglas, say they see a man out in the alley in between their bungalow and William Desmond Taylor's bungalow. They said that the only reason they knew he was out there was because they heard like a little pacing sound. And she described a five foot nine man, clean shaven, white, at about medium build. She uh, later they would find six cigarette butts out in that alley. So we do know that her eyewitness account is pretty much verified. William was hanging out at his home with silent film actress and comedian Mabel Norman, and they were having cocktails cocktails and enjoying the evening and discussing some of their interests they were they were friends and she had played some music for him on the piano and at about 7:45 William escorted Mabel to her car and when he did so he reportedly left his front door not yes. unlocked but opened as well and many people believe that it was through this front door that somebody slipped into the home unbeknownst to him and that person who did so had been hiding outside waiting for the opportunity to either approach the home or to enter it. And as um, Mabel's driver drove off, she and William bid farewell to one another, and it is believed that she is the last person to have seen William alive. When he went back into his bungalow at approximately 8 p.m., this was about the time neighbors heard a sound that some thought was a car backfiring. Neighbor Faith McLean, whose bungalow was directly east of Williams, and her husband, um, Douglas McLean, who worked with William on some of his films, they were in the dining room and they were finishing dinner. Her husband had already finished and gone upstairs when she heard this noise. She went to her front window to see what the sound may have been or where it came from, and she is said to have seen a man wearing a long coat with possibly his collar turned up and a plaid cap over his head. Though she could see that he was in about his late 20s, and she saw this man make eye contact with her, and then he nonchalantly turned back from where he had just come, as if he had left something behind and needed to retrieve it. Then a few minutes later, she witnessed the same man leave the area, walking through the courtyard in between hers and Williams's home. Faith McLean said this person had a walk that was effeminate, which is a characteristic of a walk of a woman. And to her, this person was also kind of funny looking. But because he was walking so casually, she didn't find anything to be concerned about and kind of let it go. But later she was pressed hard by the sheriff as to whether or not she saw a man, she couldn't be certain. And another neighbor named Hazel Gillian also peered out her window when she heard the backfiring sound and she saw a dark figure walking by. Yeah. And line up with what you have. No, that's exactly that lines up exactly with what I had. 8.15 PM after the shot was fired. uh, The chauffeur guy by the name of Howard fellows, he goes to move the car into the garage and he goes to drop off the keys uh, to to William, and he knocks on the door. Nobody answers, even though all the lights are on. Now, in this 15-minute span, it is believed that that's when William Desmond Taylor was shot and killed. Another thing to also 
bring up is at 6 p.m. that evening, a couple hours before this, there was an unknown man at a nearby gas station uh, asking where William Desmond Taylor lived. The description almost matches what they had seen. So that is something of note, but it really wasn't looked too hard into at the time. At that point in the evening, nobody really bothered to further investigate what this noise was, this backfiring sound. Yeah, yeah, they all they all thought it was just a car backfiring. So right, they all just carried on. I don't even know if do cars even backfire anymore. Is that even a thing? I have I haven't heard one backfire in about twenty years. So I don't even know what a car backfiring. I guess it sounds like a gunshot. Apparently. Uh, Oh yeah, it definitely does. I've you know, it's pretty loud and definitely sounds like a gunshot. It must so. have been more common before because every time that the gunshot, everyone's like, "Oh, this sounds like a car backfiring." Because if I heard a gunshot or a sound like that, I would think it's a gunshot. I wouldn't think it's a car backfiring because I've never heard a car backfire before. The next morning on February second, uh, the butler, a guy by the name of Henry Peavy, he shows up at the house and finds William Desmond Taylor dead. The, they really didn't know at that point in time if it was, you know, they thought it was natural causes at first because he was just kind of laying on his back, uh, had a little bit of blood coming out of his mouth, just right there, middle of the living room by the front door. The first thing he does is he calls Paramount Studios, and then he calls the police, mm-hmm. which is odd to me, you know, a little bit odd. So the first two cops show up, the door's wide open and there's people just going in and out of this house. They're like, what, what, what is going on here? You know, now the first person they stopped was a a studio that like the studio head, his name was Charles Aiden carrying out a box of alcohol. Now this is during the time of prohibition, but it's also Hollywood. Like, Hollywood at this time, I'm pretty sure everybody was on some kind of stimulant. I had heard stories of, you know, you going into a a speakeasy or a bar in Hollywood at this point in time. There's literally bowls of cocaine sitting on the bar and anybody can just go up and get some, you know. So, you know, when it comes to alcohol, Hollywood kind of set their own their own rules. So prohibition really wasn't a big deal, but they're carrying out a box of alcohol. So the cops walk into the house and they see other studio executives burning papers in the fireplace, which is obviously pretty suspicious. Mm -hmm. They find a set of keys that fit no locks in the house. They go upstairs, they start searching around and they find a nightgown that is embroidered with Mary Miles Mentor's initials. And then they also find a bunch of pornographic pictures. Now there's a whole little theory to that, but I guess we'll get into that with the uh, suspects and theories, but the police end up questioning Mabel Normand. She is released. Uh, She obviously is, Pretty much the last person to see this guy alive, other than the killer. Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Mentor are questioned, and we'll get into Mary Miles Mentor here in a second, why she's just like the focal point of this investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they both had an alibi, and they said that they were both home together at the time. 
And it was actually Mary Miles' mentor who said that, not Charlotte Shelby. And the reason that's important is because Charlotte Shelby is Mary's mom. And there's a whole huge thing that's going on. Like I said, we'll get into that here in a second. Now, Henry Peavy, the uh, butler, was also questioned. And what makes his questioning really interesting and also provides to one of the other theories is they had come to find that Peavy had previously been arrested for soliciting men in a nearby park. Now, this brings into question the relationship between Peavy and William It also throws in a homosexual theory, which, like I said, we'll get to here in a second, and brings up a lot of questions of why the studio executives were were possibly there. Do you want to add anything to uh, the quote-unquote investigation? Yeah, I think it is important to point out the, the reasons why we would speculate that the studio people showed up. These are representatives from Paramount Studios, and I mean, they sent over executives, actors, actresses, anybody who was available to go over there and started rummaging through William's belongings, and they were interested in seizing any letters that were written to him, though they did miss a few that were hidden in his riding boots. They seized his liquor, like you said. Henry was also told to clean up any blood that he could find anywhere in the bungalow. So. The reason why they would do this is likely to spare William's reputation, but also the studio, this was their way of doing some damage control. And it was because Holly had been shaken by some pretty high profile scandals, one being Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And here's a shameless plug. I covered him on Patreon. Yeah. And <laughs> the, in the Arbuckle, the Arbuckle trial was still going on when this happened, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was accused of the rape and murder of Virginia Rapp. I don't know how to say her last name. Rapp, hey, Rapp. I think it's Rapp, yeah. Which happened five months earlier in San Francisco. He went on trial for three times and he was acquitted. And the jury even apologized to him. Uh, but ultimately, his career was destroyed. He had a very promising career because of this scandal. He was this jovial like lovable endearing comedian and for him to have been partaking in such debaucheries like parties with sex workers and bootleg alcohol it just tarnished his image forever and it also damaged hollywood's image as well with all these scandals also involving like you had mentioned drug addiction issues that plagued some actors were getting embroiled in scandals as well actor wallace reed he yeah. died as a drug of, of a drug overdose, and his death was making sensational headlines. Jack Pickford and the suspicious and mysterious death of his wife. Religious groups and women's advocates were were rallying against the film industry, calling for boycotts of the film industry. This was said to have been the motivation for the studio going over to William's house when they found out he was dead, so they could try to gather up anything that would be embarrassing or damaging to his reputation, but also to the studio's reputation as well. So when detectives got there, the crime scene had been thoroughly contaminated. And being on the heels of these two big, huge scandals that had just rocked Hollywood, not being able to keep the salacious details out of the newspapers, they were nervous about more negative press due to this, which is why they were desperate to get over there and remove all of this stuff. 
it was a very troubling time for Hollywood because they were seen as, you know, elitist. They were looked up to and like all this stuff started happening within a short amount of time. And they're like, like you had said perfectly, like damage control. They were trying to trying to clean everything up and trying to, you know, clean up their names because, you know, at that point in time, the film industry was powerful. It was powerful enough to buy district attorneys and cops and stuff like that. But at this point in time, you know, prohibition, God-fearing people, you know, if they wanted to to rally against the film industry, that would hurt them really, really bad. So they were trying to, like, like you had said, trying to do damage control, trying to make everything just a little bit better, you know, so it didn't look as bad. You know, there's two separate theories, I guess, you know, as to why uh, the studio execs were there. And I guess with that, do you want to start getting into some of the players, maybe a little bit about Mary Miles mentor and her mother? I do. There's one more thing that I read about that I wanted to mention when it comes Definitely. to um, the crime scene. And it's one of the most perplexing parts of the story. And it's a man who was at the scene who said that he was a doctor, but he wouldn't tell anybody who was there what his name was. He told an officer at the scene that he examined the body and he came to the conclusion that William probably died of natural causes, like heart troubles. And I also read that he declared William dead of a stomach hemorrhage. Nobody was ever really able to identify or locate the supposed doctor or the reasons why he gave this diagnosis, but he was wrong, obviously. When police were called, they were told they were responding to a death regarding a natural cause. But if this person had actually been a doctor, then he was pretty (laughs) careless in his observations. Once they turned William's body over, it was clear that he had been shot in the back. Yeah, it had been reported that as police pulled up to the house, they saw individuals driving away ostensibly with the private letters and belongings of Williams along with his stash of liquor. And it said they were also burning papers as police walked in as well. This gets disputed because his bungalow didn't have a fireplace, though. But Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need a fireplace to burn things, however. Yeah, it was one single gunshot wound in the back. And the way that the bullet, there was an exit wound, but I didn't find any information on where the exit wound was located. But the entry wound, they suspected one of the most popular theories about the uh, the entry wound is that it could have been done while in an embrace. Like while somebody was hugging him, yeah. the popular theory is that somebody pulled the gun and then shot him in the back with it because of where the, the entry wound was located. It was in his back, uh, I believe, to the left side uh, in between his shoulder blade and spine and a little bit... Uh, uh, I don't know, probably about like eight to 12 inches below his, uh, his neck and shoulder area. So if you think about it, yeah, I mean, it's, if you're in a hug and, and you're going to shoot somebody and hopefully not shoot yourself while you're doing it, you know, you have to, that would be, that would be rolling the dice, you know, (laughs) but, um, the entry wound, the, the angle of it, it was done more than likely by somebody shorter than him, which probably lots of people back in the day and males included. And uh, 
you know, that the angle was just a little bit funny. So one of the popular theories is that he was shot while somebody was hugging him because the way the bullet entered his coat as well as another thing that they like to bring up because the entry wound, the way the holes went through his clothing, his arms would have had to have been extended out a little bit because when he was on his back and they rolled him over, the the bullet holes in his clothing didn't initially line up with the entry wound in his back. So arms were pulled up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like his arms were pulled up or forward. It was just a little bit offline. So he wasn't just standing there casually um, surprised. He knew somebody was in the house or it wasn't, he wasn't standing there casually, basically, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm trying to get to. Along with, you know, when somebody becomes successful, there are people who are always around that want to take advantage and people who would steal from from William and defraud him in some way, shape, or form. A man who had worked for William as his driver, cook, and personal assistant, Edward Sands, had actually crashed his car, forged some checks, and stole some valuables while William was out of the country. Charges were never brought upon him and he was never arrested, and it seemed as though he disappeared before William came back to the United States. Even the person William had hired to replace him, a man named Henry Peavy, had a troubling background that was unrelated to his work for William. You had mentioned earlier he was previously arrested for vagrancy and indecent exposure. But back in those days, these were the kind of charges that were brought upon homosexual men who were out looking for sexual partners. Incidentally, both Edward Sands and Henry Peavy were were rumored to have both been gay, which leads many to speculate that this may or may not have been a coincidence. Perhaps William himself was gay as well. William was the one who had posted bail for Henry and had told the court that he would appear on Henry's behalf on February 2nd, 1922, though he would never make it. Henry Peavy supposedly, like I said, that it because of his prior arrest record and because of Sands as well, uh, it brings into question the the homosexual theory. Now, this is early 1920s Hollywood, and this also is why a lot of people think that the studio execs were there because they think one of the theories is that because of him possibly being a homosexual director in the early 1920s, that was unacceptable. You know, it would have ruined studios. It would have ruined a lot of people's careers. It would have made them look really, really bad. You know, no offense to anybody. It was different times, you know. So one of the theories is that one of the main reasons the studio executives were there was to get rid of evidence to support that particular theory that he was possibly homosexual and you know also another theory why you know he didn't really um reciprocate the advances of of a lot of women in hollywood as well and why he never you know remarried and stuff like that but you know that brings into the brings into question too some of the evidence that that was found some people think that the pornographic pictures and mary miles mentor's uh nightgown who we'll get into here in a second why her nightgown is possibly planted evidence and why the studio execs were there doing quote-unquote damage control so 
that is one of the very, very popular, popular theories. And then, of course, touching on, you know, Sands a little bit. I mean, he wasn't a very nice guy. I, I honestly think that he he knew about um, William Desmond Taylor's past. You know, he had pawned off a lot of that jewelry and stuff he had stolen from from William. Uh, I mean, $5,000 worth of forged checks. And back then, five grand was an extremely large amount of money. So it's it's hard to say. It really is. But, I mean, some say that, you know, Sands was kind of blackmailing him. He was taunting him a little bit. We do know that on, I think it was Christmas of 1921, just a couple months, you know, before that, uh, there was a package that did arrive on William Desmond Taylor's doorstep and it was, uh, I can't exactly remember what was in it, but there was a pawn receipt inside of it, and it was signed with William Desmond Taylor's real name. So they're thinking one of the theories with him is that he possibly knew a lot of secrets about William Desmond Taylor, and he was basically taunting him, and you know that's possibly the reason he lost his job and stuff like that, because he had actually threatened uh, to kill Sands at one point in time, whether he was serious about it or it was just like in a fit of rage. But, you know, there's a little bit of bad blood there. So that does tie into to one of the theories, you know, along with uh, with Henry Peavy and the uh, the homosexual aspect of that other theory. William did file a complaint against Edward in the August prior to his death. But the police were unable to find Edward Sands because he had made off with, while he was out of the country, he had made off with his clothes, his possessions, money, and his car. Yeah. Um, pawn ticket, those, that was a pawn receipt for diamond cufflinks that he had stolen from him. And along with it was a letter that read, Dear Mr. Taylor, sorry to inconvenience you, even temporarily. Also observe the lesson of the forced sale of assets, a Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year, signed Jimmy Valentine, or a- alias Jimmy Valentine. And it's the title of a very successful Broadway play based on the short story, A Retrieved Reformation by O. Henry, which chronicles the events that led up to an ex-convict turning his life around. And mm-hmm. it was a story published in April of 1903, which was eventually turned into a play. So um, even after William was killed, they searched for Edward Sands, but they were never, they never found him. They were never able to charge him with any of the thefts, much less look into him about the murder. So um, it, it doesn't make all that much sense that Edward Sands would be considered a suspect because there was no evidence that it was him. There was no proof that he was in the area. He was mostly just a thief. So mm-hmm. we, I know people tend to escalate to murder, um, you know, when they commit crimes over time. But if robbery was his motive, um, William wasn't robbed when he was killed. There was still money in his pocket. He yeah. Had on, yeah. He had on diamond jewelry and things like that. So it doesn't fit what his motives would be. And um, Edward Sands, I don't believe he was ever heard from ever again. He if wasn't. Had, he disappeared. <laughs> My theory on that is, is that he got what he needed from William. He got all the money he needed and he left the area and started his life somewhere else and never looked back. 
Yeah, it's uh, pretty wild. And that was another thing I did forget to mention. I'm glad you brought it up was the the uh, aspect of a robbery was totally written off pretty quickly just yeah. because he had money. You know, he had money right now. Yeah. So um, as far as Henry Peavy is concerned, um, he was currently William's employee. And I'm not sure what his actual title was. They called him a servant a butler, a valet, I guess he pretty much did everything for the guy. He even cooked for him, but he was cleared early on in the investigation. However, there was this reporter, and I don't know if you read about her. Her name was Flora Bell Muir. And in an interesting side note, I looked her up and she actually had a brush with being shot at um, and almost dying because of her sort of involvement with the mob. She was sitting at a restaurant in Hollywood on July 20th, 1949, really early in the morning with her husband and along with Mickey Cohen and one of his henchmen, which named Nettie Herbert. And it's, this was an attempt on Cohen's life. He was shot at and struck in the shoulder. And Flora Bell, this reporter, was hit by a ricocheted bullet and struck in the back. She was close confidant of Mickey Cohen's. She is said to have been convinced that Henry Peavy was the killer. And yeah. she thought that she, and did you read about this? I did a little bit. I hate, I hate to bring it up, but for those of you who don't know, Henry Peavy was from what I understand, not a white guy. Yeah. He's you know? American. He's African American. So we do have to take this into consideration when people start pointing fingers at him, but it was rough. Like at one point, I think they took him what out to the graveyard. There was a bunch of cops that took yeah, him out to the graveyard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about that yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the same, so, at the same yeah. cemetery where where Bugsy Siegel is buried, that cemetery. Yeah, That's yeah. They take him out there and they pretend. One of the guys pretends to be the ghost of William <laughs> Desmond Taylor to get yes. him to try to confess to the murder, and he's just like, "What the, what the hell are you guys doing?" You know. Right, right. <laughs> and it's, but no, I I honestly didn't didn't really uh, get into this too much. I was I was so deep in the Charlotte Shelby Mary Miles mentor thing that I I really kind of concentrated on all that right there. She that that reporter Florabelle she offered him ten dollars to show her where William's grave was. They headed over to that cemetery and. A guy named Al Weinshank, he appeared in a white sheet and (laughs) (laughs) he was shouting that he was the ghost of William Desmond. You murdered me. Confess. (laughs) (laughs) And incidentally, Al Weinshank would go on to be killed in the same Day massacre. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. I thought that was a pretty interesting little fact. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a an idea that they were picking on Henry because he was African American, yeah. but he was eventually um, ruled out as having anything to do with the murder. But Florabel continued to believe this reporter that he was the one who did it. I even think she was part of the. She was perpetuating the rumor that they were having William and Henry had been having a sexual relationship. And um, mm-hmm. I had asked you while we were researching this, if you thought William was gay. And I think you said that you didn't think that. 
I I didn't think so, but I'm more 50-50 on it. I can't say 50-50, but I lean more towards no, just because of his promiscuity, you know. The speculation that his first butler, Edward Sands, may have known that William was gay or had threatened to use this information to blackmail him. It's been said that he actually did go through it. And I heard another account that um, he was also threatening to reveal his true identity, his birth name, to just out him and all of these secrets and things that he had in his past. I think he had a lot of fun taunting him, you know, taunting William Desmond Taylor and, you know, just sending the letters. And there were uh, there were phone calls, you know, that were made to William Desmond Taylor where nobody would say anything on the other end of the phone. So, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff going on up leading up to his murder, too. Well, later on in life, um, Henry Peavy would pass away in 1937. Seven years before he died, he did give an interview and he didn't name names, but he did point his finger an actress and her mother. Mm-hmm. And some believe that he was misquoted. We can get into that, but we'll get to Mary Minter in a little bit. I wanted to talk about the last person to see him, to see William alive, which was maybe yeah, um, definitely. You know their relationship. They had a very interesting relationship on, uh, I know on February 9th, about a week later, there were a bunch of letters turned over. Most of these letters were supposedly burned, but she did turn over some letters between the two. Uh, She really didn't exaggerate too much on their relationship, but it was pretty clear, you know, by, by some of the letters there, there more than likely was some kind of feelings there. Her pet name was a uh, blessed baby. I know that when he was killed, he had a locket in his pocket that was found on him, and uh, it was a picture of her. Speaking of her, real quick, one of the one of the little theories that is popular one with some people is that she was pretty big on cocaine. It was pretty well documented. She had a problem. Supposedly, at one point, William Desmond Taylor was was very against drugs. He was the guy who wanted to clean up Hollywood, you know, rid it of drugs because it was rampant. There was a point in time where he had an altercation with one of her drug dealers. So one of the theories is because she was literally buying a lot, a lot, a lot of drugs, this drug dealer, you know, because of this altercation, you know, one of the theories is that, that this uh, drug dealer came back and, you know, killed him because he didn't want his uh, bread and butter getting off of drugs. The reason I don't put too much stock in that theory is just because of the other suspects, you know, the other suspect, I should say, that's probably the most likely one, but, you know, it is worth noting that, you know, he was pretty big on, he was pretty anti-drug at a time where drugs were everywhere and everybody loved drugs. And like I said, it's just worth noting, but as for their relationship, supposedly they were, they were pretty close, but from what I understand, um, she never said that their relationship was really, really intimate unless you heard something else. From what I read, maybe it was the drugs that was the tipping point for him. By all accounts, they were very, very close. And 
I believe he cared for her very deeply. Some would say that they were close friends and they enjoyed each other's company. They loved books and philosophy and she was a comedian as well. And so they had a really great senses of humor. She struggled with the drug addiction and she had a lot of upheaval in her life that sort of led up to that. She had a broken engagement. She had a failed production company. She became injured. She um, lost a baby. I think, I don't know if the baby was stillborn or died shortly after birth. And William wanted to see her recover and wanted to help her kick her drug habit. And he very much cared and loved her. And he understood that she had gone through these hard times. Whether or not they were romantically involved, we could only speculate. Um, her addiction deeply affected him. And he's said to have never touched any narcotics. He's never been addicted to anything, although he was a drinker, though, from mm-hmm. what I understand. He was concerned about her addiction. He, like you said, he got into fist fights with her drug dealer, people who were delivering drugs to her. He even went so far as to request the assistance of the government to help combat the drug dealers that were supplying people in the film industry to get help from the attorney general and stuff like that. So, which is a really huge step. And like when people say, you know, he was a huge anti-drug advocate, Mm -hmm. you know, in Hollywood at the time, like that's not an understatement. (laughs) He was Mm -hmm. taking it about, you know, to the top as high as he could. So good on him, you know, even though he was kind of a piece of crap, I don't think she was ever considered a plausible suspect in this case. Um, Yeah. Well, there were people who thought that she might have had a hand in it or been related to, like you had said, uh, somebody who might have done this. Some thought she was possibly having an affair with him and um, Mm -hmm. maybe she was jealous of other women. Others have floated the theory that it might have been um, her ex that had done this. Yeah. Um, she even was involved in a relationship with Samuel Goldwyn, who, you know, MGM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's <laughs> the G in MGM. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when they turned, when she turned over those surviving letters, you know, the week later to the, uh, to the DAs and the, uh, the police department, you know, they kind of, I think at that point, that's when they kind of ruled her out because there really wasn't anything really extreme in any of the letters, you know, so. Right. So I agree. You know, after, after his death, her, her career just sort of spiraled. Um, She was in and out of sanitariums there throughout the twenties, wasn't she? Her drug addiction. She had some. Yeah. Um, she was having difficulty keep holding down work. Um, she had another shooting incident. She was at a New Year's Eve party, and there was a fight between um, the host of the party and her driver, and her driver shot the host. <laughs> her driver was brought to trial, and he claimed it was self-defense, and he was eventually acquitted. But this further damaged her career and her reputation, and even so much so that her films were being banned and boycotted. She staged a comeback in 1926. She completed a couple more films, but was never really able to revive her career. And on February 22nd, 1930, she died of tuberculosis at the age of 35. Mm -hmm. 
I don't see her being so much of a suspect. Yeah, I don't. I don't really either. Um, at first, when I first started getting into this, I was like, "Ooh," I was like, "You know, you always got to think of the last person that saw him alive in the situation and the context of the situation." But yeah, after getting into it, I was just like, "Nah, I really don't see it." The next person I have on my list is William's brother, Dennis. Okay. Okay, so I found this theory that an, this person from William's past had been holding a grudge against him for some time. This theory postulates that Edward Sands was actually his brother, Dennis Gage Dean Tanner. Um, did you read about that? No, I didn't. Yeah, that Edward Sands was actually his brother. And someone with a tip sent a letter to police that William had once taken away um, a one-time love interest of his brother and that this was a killing in revenge years in the making because of that. His brother himself, Dennis, was somewhat of a mysterious individual and it seems sort of a mirror image of William's. He was four years younger and he was the youngest of um, their four children. And what set him apart from William is the fact that Dennis was able to please their father. William was would not and could not enlist in the military as a youth. Dennis did enter the army. He was a lieutenant in the British Army from 1899 to 1902. After the war, he came to New York, just like his brother had. He became the manager of an antique store, just as his brother had. And in 1907, he married Ada Brennan, and they had three children, um, the one of them would pass away in infancy, infancy. And just as his brother had, he deserted his wife as well, without word, without explanation, without any apologies. It's believed that Dennis reached out to William and even had acted in one of his movies, and nobody really knew that they were brothers. And it was an effort of William's to keep his true identity um, a secret. Ada, however, his wife, was desperate to find Dennis, um, she didn't find him, but she did find William. I assume that Dennis may have told her that William was his brother. He tried to tell her that he wasn't related to her ex-husband, um, denying that he was Dennis's brother, but she just lost it. She broke down into tears. She was yeah. in dire straits, and, and so he ended up helping to support her until he died. So the theory is, is that Dennis was Edward Sands. The comparison was mm. made for a couple of reasons. One that the brothers, they were both pretty good at disappearing from their lives. And once he disappeared, he disappeared. And also that pawn ticket that William received in the mail, Edward Sands had made off with his money and his valuables. He used his real birth name on the pawn ticket. So only somebody who knew William and what his true identity was would have been able to do that. The person who robbed him knew that while he was in Europe, knew his true identity, and obviously Dennis would have known that, since Edward Sands was responsible for reading Williams's mail, he might have run across some correspondences that were addressed specifically to him. There are pictures of both men, and they're said to really no look nothing alike. Dennis being tall and lean, and Sands was actually more stocky. But when I looked at pictures of Sands, he didn't really seem that all that stocky to me. Um, I no, not really. Some pictures from when he was in the Navy and he has a slight resemblance to William in some ways, but that's only my opinion. So like I said, there was never, he was never heard from again after William's death. And there is no record of Dennis Dean Tanner anywhere past 1930. So who knows? 
both Edward Sands and Dennis Tanner disappeared. So that's pretty interesting. I know you're anxious to talk about Mary Miles Minter. So, oh no, it's no, you please. I'm I'm listening intently. Yeah, well, that's all I have because he was never found. So that was the end of that. The next um, suspect on my list is Mary's Mile Mary Miles Minter. All right, into her. Oh yeah, well. Mary Miles Minter, okay, she was uh, 17 at the time of his death. She was a stage actress, very, very young. Uh, She started getting into films when she was about 13 or 14. And she had a huge infatuation for him. And the the guy was almost old enough to be her grandfather. And, I mean, there there were letters found, you know, from her to him. And it was just a... You know, she was in love with this guy, okay? Well, her mother, a woman by the name of Charlotte Shelby, was a pretty horrible woman. She was very mean, very manipulative. All she cared about was money and what her daughter was doing and making sure that her daughter was still making money. And, you know, where this these theories come in. Some people believe that when Mabel Norman got to his house initially, that it was Charlotte Shelby that he was arguing on the phone with. Now, obviously we don't know that it's just a theory that's thrown out there. Some people also believe that Mary Minter was actually in the house when the shooting occurred. Uh, Some people think that she might have been upstairs And the theory goes that Charlotte Shelby goes over to confront William Desmond Taylor after their argument on the phone, finds Mary Minter there. As he's hugging her, Charlotte Shelby shoots him in the back while they're in an embrace. Now, there's a lot of weird coincidences that happen. Uh, One of the main one being uh, their alibi. Okay. Now Mary Miles Minter was the one that said they were both home together at the same time. You know what? If you had a mom like that and you were on the scene of a murder, 17 years old, there's a good chance you're going to say what you need to say to, uh, you know, stay out of jail or keep your mom happy. At the time she was worth, over a million dollars, which would have been about $15.1 million today. So ruining her career over a love affair with an extremely older man probably wouldn't have been the best idea. And Charlotte Shelby, this was something that could not happen. Like I said, if if you can imagine the grandmother from Mothers and or from Flowers in the Attic, that movie or that book, that's what I think of when I see like Charlotte Shelby, <laughs> like just like, this totally evil woman. I think of like you know? the worst like stage mom ever. <laughs> yeah, and not only so, that, she even, <laughs> even faked or she's got a fake birth certificate. She had an older sister, yeah, an older yeah. relative that had died, and she used it as as Mary's, um, so that she could circumvent child labor laws. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's, uh, I believe it was a, a dead cousin. Yeah, because her original name was, uh, what, Juliet, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her name, yeah. Was, she was born Juliet Riley, and the name on the birth certificate was Mary Miles Minter. Yeah. And it, it also should be noted that Mary Miles Minter was a very, very beautiful woman. Even She was 30 years younger than William, 
Um, her star was on the rise at the time. She was adorable. She had those cute, like Shirley Temple blonde curls, and she was popular. and And her movies were very well received. And he, she was like William's muse, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. And they worked together on a lot of films. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing about her was she had a $1.3 million clause in her contract for her to stay single so she could play, you know, little girl roles and and have that persona. So if she would have been in love or been in a relationship or even lost her virginity to William Desmond Taylor and that got out, that would totally, absolutely ruin her career. So that was one of the main reasonings for this theory. And it's really odd because, uh, like I said, uh, Mary Mentor was worth about, in today's money, $15 million. That's what strings one of the popular theories. And one of the things they mentioned, too, is that even before the body was discovered, Charlotte Shelby had said something to her chauffeur about him being dead when technically nobody even would have known about it. Now with Mary Mentor being, you know, worth about $15 million. One thing to note is that Charlotte Shelby's bank account drastically decreased um, after this murder and the bank account of about three district attorneys, their bank bank accounts got bigger well, t- apparently Charlotte Shelby was having a relationship with the head district attorney. I can't remember his last name. I think it was uh, like started with a W, um, you know, forgive me listeners. I can't remember everything, but that kind of ties into that as well. And then also in later years, Mary Mentor never came out and said that her mother was responsible but there were passages in her diary that were found after she passed away that did state that her mother was responsible for the death of William Taylor. And when you take all of these little things into consideration and start like working the theories, I honestly believe that that Charlotte Shelby was the person responsible and the only thing that throws that theory off, which I'm glad that you mentioned the eyewitness account earlier. The only thing that throws that theory off is the man that was seen at the bungalow. But a lot of people think that it was Charlotte Shelby dressed as a man to cover her tracks. So I don't know how tall she was because, you know, the, the eyewitness description was what about like five foot nine medium build. I'm not exactly sure how Charlotte Shelby was built, but side theory is that she actually hired somebody, possibly an off-duty cop, you know, through her DA connections, or even just a hitman or somebody who was a drug dealer. So what do you think about that? In her statement to police, Mary denied seeing William anytime recently prior to his murder. And that the last time she had seen him, they passed each other on the road each in their own car, and they waved to one another. And this was found to be an untrue statement. And they uh, apparently investigators were proved that Mary had been to his apartment many times, and they believed that they had proof that she was there the night of the murder. And on William's jacket at the scene of the crime, they found three long blonde hairs that police believed to have belonged to Mary. They compared them to a hairbrush that belonged to her back at the studio. 
William was said to have been very meticulous about his clothing and that he could have cleared his jacket of hairs and lint regularly. The possibility as to how those hairs got onto his jacket is um, that they did see each other driving, stopped, greeted one another, and that she could have hugged him and getting her, and got her hairs on his jacket. In a book published in 2004 by author named Charles Higman, he floated the theory that the backfire sound that was heard in the neighborhood was indeed a backfire, and the person leaving William's bungalow was a visitor that he wanted to get rid of as quickly as possible, and then that he was about to start working on preparing his taxes for the evening. Um, the author speculated that Mary had come to William's home late at night, threw herself at him again, because I think he was not returning like yeah i heard i heard it was wasn't reciprocated like he didn't really feed into it but she was like almost obsessed by some of the letters that i saw right and um that he came to her home to his home threw her threw herself at him um but this time she brought a gun with her and she threatened to shoot herself or him in order to calm her down that he embraced her and that the gun accidentally went off. And as it's believed from the way things that were found, it seems that he was in the position of hugging someone when he was shot. The hole in his jacket and his vest did not line up, and the powder burns indicated that he was shot at close range with arms raised up. Um, the person who shot William is believed to be just over five feet tall, so this eliminates just about every male suspect on the roster and implicates just about every female suspect, unless that person had been more in a crouching position. As for the lingerie found with the letters MMM embroidered on it, I read that there were some handkerchiefs found around his bungalow with those same initials on them. Yeah. But the lingerie was never really proven to have this type of identification on it. In light of the news being reported to the media, uh, Mary... She challenged the media. She said she would give $1,000 to anyone if they could produce this pink lingerie with her initials on it. Nobody was ever really able to come up with it. The lingerie was never produced that I read. Did you know for sure that that was found? Uh, I I heard varying accounts. I just heard it was a story made up to make the story like more... Well, and you know what? And with the handkerchief found and the pornographic pictures it very easily could have been because when the studio execs went in there before the cops got there, it's hard telling, you know, what was destroyed, what might've been planted. It really is. The death of William, it was a disaster for Mary, both personally and professionally. Her letters to him were plastered across the pages of the newspapers And it essentially destroyed the image that she had created for herself in the public eye of this wholesome young girl. The press had vilified her. And then when it became public knowledge that she was involved with, possibly involved with a man so much older than herself, um, the public was appalled. And any movie she she was in was boycotted. Paramount would go on to refuse to renew her after she finished out her contract. Though she did receive some more offers from other production companies, she had turned them all down. She did not want to be an actress anymore, which she didn't want to to begin with. It was her mom. Yeah. So walking over away from this career um, was like no harm, no foul for her. 
And she was willing, she willingly turned her back on Hollywood and wanted to just forget the past. And she went on to get remarried in 19, to get married in 1957 to a businessman. Unlike a lot of the people that were in and around William's life at the time, she did go on to live a long life and mm -hmm. she passed away in Santa Monica, California in 1984 at the age of 82. By the end of uh, her mother's life, I believe that they didn't have the best relationship and a lot of people think it's, it's because, you know, obviously because of this, I heard that she had, you know, when her mom got to the point where she couldn't take care of herself, Mary Mentor just kind of locked her in an upstairs room and, you know, yeah. <laughs> just kind of left her um, up there, you know. There were some that believed that in no uncertain terms, it was her mother, Charlotte Shelby, who murdered William. And the motive was very simple, that she did not approve of her daughter's feelings for him. Yeah. Whether or not she knew if her daughter was sexually involved with him, I don't even know if that's been confirmed or not. I, I highly doubt it's been confirmed. It, um, I, I had read it in one of the theories because supposedly the argument on the phone when Mabel got there was because she, Charlotte Shelby, had found out that her daughter had lost her virginity to him um, previous to that. Well, that's so that's yeah, yeah. She only had to think it were possible that would have been oh, exactly lose it over this. If she oh, yeah. believed William was having sexual relations with Mary, then it would have been enough for her to want to kill him. Many beliefs that could very well have been the case. Um, yeah. It has been described as a difficult stage mom. She was manipulative and she was all consumed with her daughter's career. She was greedy about it and it was all about the money. Um, Mary and her mother fought bitterly over money and finances. Um, though later and she on, actually, Mary Mentor, or actually Charlotte Shelby invested her daughter's money pretty well. I mean, yeah, she was... She, I'll, kind I'll, of buried yeah. the hatchet later on. Um, yeah. When Charlotte Shelby was questioned by police, they characterized her as pretty vague and evasive, which I guess is normal for somebody like that. But yeah. um, that she was lying, but she was lying, but they really felt she was trying to hide Mary's potential possible relationship with William. Charlotte, I wouldn't be surprised if she was in a full blown like panic over William and whether she killed him or had him killed or had nothing to do with it. I can imagine all she cared about was Mary's career and how this murder was going to affect it. Um, being evasive, it was, she was probably in like, she was protecting, um, protecting yeah. Mary's reputation because she knew what a scandal was going to do to her daughter's career. Exactly. So I don't really put too much into her being like vague with police. One of the most compelling arguments in favor that she was the one that had William killed was the fact that she owned a very rare 38 caliber pistol with some bullets. Yes. Yeah. You want to talk about the gun? Nope. You go right ahead. You're on a roll because I was going to, I was going to mention that if you didn't. Oh, oh, I've been talking a lot. <laughs> no, you're doing just fine. Like I'm, I'm right here with you. Like we literally have like, for the most part, some of the same stuff. So you're, you're on a roll. Just keep killing okay. it. I will, I will talk <laughs> about this. I want you, do you know about, the temper tantrum that Mary had at her house when she fired her mom's gun. So 
Charlotte apparently owned a very rare 38 caliber pistol that had some very unique bullets that were believed to be similar to the ones that killed William. And it has been speculated that after this information hit the press, she took that pistol and threw it into a bayou in Louisiana. Now, this is where they're from. Yeah, to yeah. bolster this gun theory, there had been an event in 1920 when Mary had a tantrum while she was locked in her room with her mother's gun and some shots were fired. Mary supposedly played dead when her family came in and she leapt up and laughed. The incident Mary had with William and her gun was similar to this. And with her family and her gun, that he was trying to get it away from her when she had come over to his house. In the rafters of the home where Mary lived at the time when she pulled off this fake suicide event, they found an unfired bullet and it was described as being the same type and weight of the bullet that was extracted from William's body. So they've kind of sort of connected the weapon to Mary and her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, the DA, Thomas Lee Woolvine. Woolwine. Yeah. Yes. Woolwine. Yep. That's what it was. Yeah. Him and uh, Charlotte Shelby apparently had some kind of relationship. In the years following William's murder, um, Charlotte purposely vacationed, I guess you could say, outside the United States in order to avoid being questioned by the district attorney. Um, (laughs) And there was a successor who she had, I guess, maybe had had a relationship with. She did what she could to avoid the media. And it's also alleged that she had paid off Woolwine, who had also been previously accused of accepting bribes. So, And also the, the DA after him also was convicted of bribery in another case. So it's been speculated that they weren't really looking too hard at her because she was lining their pockets, the Los Angeles district attorneys. Yeah, because when you add all this stuff up, you can narrow it down pretty quickly. I mean, we did it in a couple hours. (laughs) It's like, ah, some stuff going on here. This is probably one of the things that caused Charlotte to become so possessive and protective of her. When Mary first began her acting career, in order to pr- protect Mary, she would do anything to protect Mary and oh, yeah. even go so far as to kill. Yeah. When she was a teenager, she became involved with a man named James Kirkwood, who was a director, and she became pregnant. And Charlotte Shelby purportedly paid for the abortion and also threatened James Kirkwood with her gun. Yeah, like she walked right into the studio, didn't she? <laughs> I I didn't get too much information out of that, but do you think it was Charlotte? Do you think she hired somebody or do you think it was Charlotte dressed up as a man? Oh, man. There's a theories guy. <laughs> Personally, I think she hired somebody. She definitely had knowledge of it, but at the same time, that caliber bullet, because there were two guns also found in the house, but they were a different caliber. So, you know, those were pretty pretty quickly exclu- excluded from the investigation of being like the possible murder weapons. But between Mary and her mom, obviously those two know who did it. But if what I read about her diary passages were true, which obviously I haven't seen any photocopies of anything ever written, if, if those those were true and the fact that you know, Charlotte Shelby had said something to her chauffeur, you know, before the body was even discovered because the body was discovered at what, like 8, 8.30 a.m. or something like that on February yeah. 2nd. So yeah. By, um, um, it, 
Yeah, by Henry. So if if she's saying something to her chauffeur at seven thirty, I mean, obviously she has some knowledge of the crime. But um, the eyewitness account of how the man, how the quote unquote man walked, I thought that was really really interesting because that is one of the theories that she showed up dressed as a man to try to throw people off, you know, and just went in there and did it did it herself, but. And this is like a long, strung out theory, but personally, I just think Charlotte Shelby did it, but I don't think she was there alone. I think Mary Minter was at the house when it happened. I think that she was hugging William Desmond Taylor as the mom came to the house. And I think that, you know, his back was turned. I think she came up behind him quickly, took the shot. But I also think that somebody was with her, whether it was a chauffeur or of a friend of hers or something of that nature. I don't think she was dressed up as a man, really. But I think she took somebody there to ensure, you know, like as a lookout to help, you know, get Mary Mentor out of the house, like through a back door or, or whatever the case might have been. Because even though the, you heard the shot, like you notice all the neighbors, there were you know, three people who reportedly heard the shot and there was only one person who actually looked out the window, you know, cause everybody thought it was a car backfiring or whatever. So it's like, I don't know. I think, I think Charlotte Shelby did it. I think she walked in on him and Mary in a hug. I don't think it was anything sexual really between Mary and William Desmond Taylor, even though Mary Mentor wanted that, I don't think it was reciprocated. But like you had said earlier, like the perfect thing you said was all it takes is for Charlotte Shelby to think that, you know, it doesn't matter if it happened or not. All she has to do is have that in her mind that it happened and she's got all the motive in the world. And then you have the the matching caliber bullets. But the man that was spotted, I mean, obviously he was there for a while. I think he was waiting there, obviously, for his opportunity because there were six cigarette butts found out in that alley where the guy was spotted. So he was there for a while watching and waiting. And I think that he might have been the person who's either, you know, slipped in the house or called Charlotte Shelby up and said, okay, come now, or whatever the case might have been. I don't know how. Not a hundred percent sure how the telephone system worked back then. I'm pretty sure you had to have a an operator connect calls, which, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, which that would be really interesting to find out because half the time those operators didn't they stayed on the call and listened to what was going on <laughs> half the time. You know what I mean? So if he's having a a really large you know a loud argument with somebody on the phone. I want to know who that person was, because I think if we know who that person was, I think that can either help us come to the conclusion of a theory or help us exclude like some of the theories. But I think Mary Mentor was in the house when it happened. I think Charlotte Shelby was definitely responsible. If she didn't pull the trigger, she gave the gun to the person who did pull the trigger. But through and through, I think that's kind of how it played out just from timeline, eyewitness accounts, and, you know, means, motive, and opportunity, I guess. What do you think happened? It seems like Charlotte has the biggest motive, but also, you know, the people who were robbing and stealing from him as well have a motive also. But did you read about Mary's sister? 
Um, no. Okay, so 16 years after William's death, her sister Margaret publicly accused their mother of being the murderer. And Margaret Shelby, also it's worth noting that she was struggling with depression and alcoholism by this time. So there's that. And she was, you know, by no means the only person to believe that her mom was the killer. Charlotte was suspected by many, not just by people who knew of the case, but also writers and journalists as well and reporters. It was Mary's sister's theory that Charlotte's own feelings were caving in on her, her feelings for her daughter, wanting to protect her, but that Charlotte herself was possibly in love with William as well. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Add another log to the fire. <laughs> <laughs> but despite all the rumors and conjectures, Charlotte Shelby would never be indicted for murder. She was never too of the district attorneys refused to file charges against her. It's been said there's just not enough evidence. And though he did recommend that the case files be kept permanently, everything related to this case is gone. Everything has vanished. Yeah. And, um, Mary's sister, Margaret passed away mm. in 1939. And, you know, it was just a year after she publicly accused her mother of murdering William. And, both she and Mary had long battled with their mother on how mom had mishandled money that was earned by the young actresses and lawsuits were filed. But Mary eventually did reconcile with her mother. And you said that her mom managed her finances pretty well. So yeah, um, yeah, she, uh, she didn't do too bad. Yeah. So um, as far as Charlotte being a suspect, the witnesses said they saw a man at the time of the shooting, but Mm -hmm. they also thought that perhaps it was a woman dressed as a man because even Faith McLean, the neighbor, said that the person had like a walk like a woman, but was wearing a man's coat and had the collar pulled up and trying to kind of hide and the and the hat down in a way. The clothes the way that the person was wearing the clothes was the way that a woman would have worn them. Mm-hmm. Um maybe the mannerisms and you know, particular things that one would associate being uh, mannerisms of a male versus mannerisms of a female. Um, mm-hmm. You just kind of guess and you you make a judgment based on what you see. And Faith was believed to have said she is certain that she saw a woman dressed as a man. So if that were the case, then that would bolster the theory that it was Charlotte that was the killer. Exactly. Awesome. Um, so how'd you, how'd you like this crazy mess? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the the failure, it was a big, huge failure of managing the crime scene. There's oh, yeah. So much corruption on every level. The losing of physical evidence over the years, and even now everything is gone. Documents, everything got destroyed. And after so many theories and people have written books, and I have you seen the, the website that, that... Oh, my God. Geez. Listeners... Do not go to this <laughs> website. <laughs> it is there. It is crazy. It is impossible. It is. It is infinite. There's so much stuff to read. It's. It's really like if you want to waste, you know, like a few weeks of your life, like don't. trying to solve this. Go, go to that website. No. Oh my gosh. The worst website I've ever seen. <laughs> Like it looks like it was it was made in like two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it really does too. Oh man! Uh, 
AOL connection, man. Yeah, it's terrible. I took a few minutes and I looked around. There's just no way. There is absolutely useless. You get better. Go look at Wikipedia. You have better luck finding it. Yeah. Oh yeah, and there's a there's a couple really good documentaries on YouTube about it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, yeah. But the the sad thing, the really troublesome thing about the YouTube documentaries and, and Wikipedia is the varying information, like the little details, they're different and like almost each one. So it's like, Oh, it's like, what was it? You know, some say it was Mary's underwear that was found. Some say it was a nightgown. Some say it was embroidered. Some say it wasn't. And it's just like, Oh, come on. Like, you know, and that would actually lead to it believing that maybe it's maybe it's not true because you have so many varying information the one solid thing was the keys to no locks that were found that they still they have no idea where they came from or what the lot what the keys go to and then the uh the handkerchief this is probably this is the perfect case for a show on mysterious circumstances (laughs) <laughs> like you said every small detail is disputed depending on who you talk to and yeah um i like i didn't really like william desmond taylor personally no yeah. it doesn't take away from the fact that he was violently murdered and his murder has never been solved he enjoyed what he did and he tried to remain private despite his celebrity status um, he was. He really did. That's one thing I noticed too. When he was in his later years in Hollywood, while everybody was out partying or whatever, he was at home, you know, drinking, drinking a little booze and reading. Yeah. You know, most of the time he really wasn't about, you know, the huge nightlife or anything. But I respect him for being, like we had stated earlier. You know, he was a huge, you know, anti-drug guy in Hollywood, and that made him probably a lot of enemies too. He was intelligent, he was sophisticated, he was a gentleman, and he was very well-liked. He was president of the Motion Pictures Directors Association three times. He worked really hard at keeping drugs out of the film industry. He had this penchant of employing unsavory individuals um, and being involved with women who were very emotional over him and he allowed people into his life where he let his guard down. So whether it was somebody close to him or somebody associated with him, someone from his past life as William Cunningham Tanner, somebody who was mad at him because he was trying to cut in on their drug dealing business. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the truth could ever be known, but who's your favorite suspect? Oh, Charlotte Shelby through and through. Definitely. How about you? When we first started and you asked, I was kind of thinking one of his employees, you know, that we're stealing from him. But I think you might be right. I think the greed and wanting to protect your child. To her, it was to her. It was an investment. You know? Yeah, that that's a huge probably of all of the motivators. That's probably the biggest one. I would agree. um, Thank you again for joining me on this episode. Oh, this is so great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love doing these and we're going to do another one really soon. (laughs) Yes. And that one's going to be crazy too. Oh man. I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to try my best. You go deeper than I do, but seriously, 
I'm going to try my hardest because you you outdid me on this one. You were like going off on side tank people and like tying it all in. And I was like, damn, Roseanne. Well, see, right. <laughs> you had a pretty set person who you were. You know, I did. And I'm usually not like that. I'm usually very not opinionated and go in depth with everything. But with this particular one, I, I, I hate to admit, I really did zero in on, on mentor and, and her mother. I really did. Website we were talking about. I can't think of like the, the name of the website, but that ridiculous like website with like thousands and thousands of pages, they listed, I, I texted just or I messaged him. I was like, <laughs> There are 35 suspects in this case. And he's like, no, 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 there's only like six. And really like only one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I will narrow it down to like. <laughs> there, there were a lot like, don't get me wrong, but it's like, you know, some of them you can always write off pretty easily. And it's like, well, it's like, I don't know about that. But I mean, once you start getting into, into mentor and, and her mom, it's just like, like I said, I got kind of zeroed in on that. I'm almost ashamed that I did that because I'm I'm pretty against that. But cast of characters is pretty eclectic, and they seem to yeah, you know, and they all have motives, you know. Yeah, but the love and the money; those are huge things. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. And like I said, you know, the bank account statements from. Charlotte Shelby, you know, shortly after the murder. And, you know, that was kind of, I was like, oh, I was like, well, looky what we got here. (laughs) I didn't even get in that deep with it because I was all with these five or six other people. I I was open-minded to whoever, but I knew you. Yeah. Well, once I heard there was a, that $1.3 million clause in her contract to stay single, and to so she could play younger girl roles and and keep that persona i was like okay so the studio would be seriously mad let alone charlotte shelby be seriously mad if these two were caught in a relationship or somebody found out that they were intimate with each other which to be honest with you i really don't for all the things that i read and I don't think Taylor really, like I said, reciprocated the feelings, but I mean, it was pretty obvious. Mary Mentor was, was pretty in love with this guy. Which kind of lends to the theory that he might've been gay too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Doesn't throw themselves at somebody who's like beautiful and young and totally into you. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, that theory ties into the to the Henry Peavy theory, you know, and it's like, okay, who was Henry Peavy? Like, who was his other butler Sands? Like, why were these two, you know, possibly homosexual guys, you know, working for Taylor when the, nobody really knew exactly what they did? You know, one of them was a secretary, you know, you can call anybody a secretary and then you know, added on to that is the fact that how did Sands know about William's past, William Desmond Taylor's past? Like, was it pillow talk? You just, you never know. It's, it's really odd. There's, it can go like all kinds of ways, you know? Well, I guess we'll have to ask everybody in our groups to tell us what they think then. I'm pretty sure you are correct with that one. 
Yeah, the next one, I'm going to have to get a hold of some doctors and scientists for that one. You do that. Because <laughs> I think that one's going to be really interesting. Oh, man. I might have to jump down a conspiracy hole and everything else. I don't know yet. I'm, I'm willing to go with the simple answer because <laughs> on this one, I, I was just talking to my husband yesterday about it. I said, I'm going to kind of believe what what the medical examiner says, but... Although, how could it be? This is too much of a coincidence. Coincidence yeah. happened. So that's pretty. It's pretty interesting when you get into it. So I guess we'll find out. We'll try to find out. We'll try to solve it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Well, Roseanne, thank you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. And all right. right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this very special bonus collaboration episode with Justin of the Mysterious Circumstances podcast. As always, he did an amazing job with this episode. He did all of the editing and putting this all together for you. And I am already bugging him to do another one in the upcoming months. Hopefully, because these are always lots of fun to do. For me anyway, because he does all the work, actually. I'm just along for the ride. But again... Thank you for joining us, and until next time, sweet dreams.